Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to what up? the day before Thanksgiving, if you're here in the U.S. That's also known as Wednesday, November 21st. <laughs> hey, we want to pop in here with a quick uh, kind of pre-Thanksgiving message. We've been, we haven't done our agency vision uh, live the last couple weeks. We've got an excuse for that, which we'll share with you live here today. But yeah, Dimmer and I wanted to pop in, do a quick agency vision. He just finished up a book in his downtime while he's twiddling his thumbs over there. Exactly. Dimmer, what's up with you? Well, I wanted to show everyone why I've been out. And if you're listening to this on the podcast stream, I'm sorry about that. Are you pulling this up on your phone? I'm pulling this up on my phone. This is like insanely technically advanced. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah, that comes through. There we go. That is Rosie Jean Dembski. Daughter number two in the Dembski family. She showed up a little over two weeks ago. And so I've been off the grid, hanging out, doing dad stuff, uh, bottles and burps and diaper changes and everything. Um, and so it's it's been a good time. I got a question for you. How, what, what do you tell people? Do you say, this is my second, I, we just had our second baby, we just had our second daughter? What do you, what I've, do you been, I've been I've been saying little girl number two because I'm outnumbered three to one at this point. So... I want people to empathize with me on how much floral there is in my house, how much pink there is surrounding me, um, Disney princesses all over the place. So that's how I've been framing it. That's awesome. We had Laurel, our oldest, and then Bennett, who just turned two the other day. And with a boy and a girl, it was always just we had baby number two. Um, But I feel like when I've said to other people about you guys, I'm like, yeah, my buddy Dimmer – they just had their second little girl. But it's like, there could be boys there, too. He might have seven kids. He's got five five boys, and now he just had a second girl. I don't know. But I think it's funny that I've been thinking of, like, do you say it any differently when it's uh, two of the same? Yeah. So it's been, a, it's been a good time. Having, like, two weeks to just be at home, and we did, a, we did a, I think, a better job this time than with our first of just kind of, like, shutting out and just, like, saying, we're going to spend this time as a family and just kind of hunker down and do our thing. And that's just – it's been really rejuvenating. And so public thank you to Gray here for holding down the fort and keeping the operation running. And a, uh, I'd say a big shout-out to a, a business that runs on processes that can lose a co-founder for two weeks. And, hey, we're still running here. So thank you, dude, for giving me and the family the opportunity to have that time. It's, that's special. That's uh, well. rare. Stop, 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 but really, keep it coming. Um, <laughs> no, it, it was, uh, it's cool to have that time. Obviously, when someone's at, it's not, I mean, I love having you as part of the team, too, but have time to see, okay, here's how things function without, we're a small team, so without a core person on the team, how do things function? And yeah. from all of us in the Agency Journey Insiders community, to you, congratulations. <laughs> to you and Rachel. Thank you. I'm first <laughs> of Rosie Jean. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm excited to meet her in person. So, you got some extra responsibility on your shoulders now. A dad of two. Yes. And leadership is a big part of your calling right now. <laughs> Have you learned any lessons recently regarding leadership? Great. That's a fantastic question. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Listen, what when you a become setup. a dad and the dad jokes <laughs> come in and the- the very tangentially related silly puns have to come with it. That's what I'm here for. You're welcome. That's Ladies perfect. Um, the purpose of this live is not just to give you guys a family update, but I want to walk through five practical leadership lessons that agency owners like y'all can learn from General Eisenhower. 
And kind of the background for this episode comes from the fact that I just finished this book. Put this guy up there again. This is Eisenhower in War and Peace. It is by Gene Edward Smith, a fantastic historian biographer. He did a biography called FDR and on Grant, um, two other U.S. presidents. And it's by far, to this degree, this is the thickest book I've ever read. It's 750 pages. It's November now. I started it in July and got something this this big of an undertaking. I was proud of that. It's definitely the biggest biography I've read yet. And I was just sucked into it. I didn't know much about General Eisenhower moving into it or President Eisenhower. And I learned a lot. And I'm really excited about some of the the lessons that I took from it that I can apply to our business. um, And I think would be really helpful for a lot of folks here in the community, Gray. So um, I'm ready to dig in whenever you are. Say that. Say the name of the book one more time. Since I've not, is, I've not done my, my assigned reading yet. It is Eisenhower in War and Peace. There you go. So, yeah. So five lessons. You got five lessons. You said what did you say? Seven hundred something pages in there. Seven hundred fifty pages. There's more than five lessons, but these are the five that I pulled out that I thought could have the most practical impact on all of us as business owners, as leaders today. A um, couple high level thoughts about like Eisenhower's personality that might help set the stage for this. He was going into World War II, he was just a colonel in the US Army. Like he was he wasn't like this shiny big leader going into everything and he wasn't very charismatic like you know General Patton would be or General MacArthur was. Like these are big personalities and Eisenhower was more of a logistics guy coming in from the back. But what you see early in his career is his ability to network and his ability to know people. And he uses it to his advantage in a lot of ways when he gets assignments early in his career that aren't the most advantageous to moving you up the military ladder. He's kind of leveraging these relationships that he built with more senior generals to say, hey, get me out of here. Take me somewhere else. I don't want to be here right now. Um, So that's kind of a background of who he is. He has a logistics background and he's good at building relationships and he's kind of even killed in that sense. Um, Sorry to cut you off. I'm looking up right now. Do you know how old he was? When was he born? He was born Uh, in 1890. Okay. Yeah. So, so he was the last U.S. president to be born in the 19th century. Nice. I guess yeah. if Kennedy came after him and he was the young buck. Then, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, sorry to first lesson. You. That's okay. That's pretty much why we're here. Part the first, the first lesson is have the self confidence to surround yourself with smart people. And it's one thing that I saw in him from how he chose like his chief of staff, how he like built different staffs at different posts around his military career, specifically when he became supreme commander of the Allied forces during World War II. He brought in generals and he brought in influences that you know could intimidate him. They had more experience than him. When he became supreme Allied commander, he'd never commanded troops on the ground. So everyone around him was technically smarter at him, or smarter than he was at the job they were doing. But what he did is he had the capacity to recognize the value that they had and the confidence to bring them together and not feel defensive. And I think this is a huge lesson for us, Gray, as business leaders, is to know that we can surround ourselves with people, whether they're on our team or if they're like if they're mentors that we work with or if they're masterminds that we join. 
whether they're just network relationships that we build, we need to surround ourselves with people that are smarter than us. And that should be kind of a sign. Like you always want to be the dumbest person in the room. That's what my dad used to tell me growing up. And I think that's something to strive for instead of being someone who has to prove how smart you are or prove how original your thought processes are. Surround yourself by people who've been there, done that before, and you're going to be in a position to you know, win a lot of things leveraging that team that's surrounding you. If I could add on to that, I think that uh, don't be the smartest person or hire people that are smarter than you sounds intimidating to people because it's like, well, anybody who's smarter than me, like I want to make a good amount of money. If someone's smarter than me, they probably want to make even more money than I want to make. <laughs> um, how am I going to hire those people or whatever else? I don't really think that, and that's, I used to think of it as like overall smarter than you. And now I don't think of it that way. I think of it as like, I want to hire people who are smarter than me in that specific context that I need them. I don't, it, you don't need to be a better baseball coach than I am. Cause that has no bearing on, um, the success of what we do with our business right now. I need you to be better than me at, at these specific things at web development or at SEO or at, um, coaching and leading people or, you know, whatever specific things that we need. So I think of it more as like, mm-hmm. a, you want people who are s- clearly superior to your skill set in that specific role. Um, even if it's what we think of as more menial, um, mm-hmm. tasks, you know, like a, a virtual assistant, people often, I think it's easy to look down at someone who's in like that type of role, but really I want that person to be better than me at handling the certain tasks that I have. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Agency Journey. I'm Andrew. I'm a co-host here on the podcast and I'm a founder of Zen Pilot. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love a five-star review and a comment on where you're listening from and what you're getting out of this podcast. You could drop that over on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to the podcast today. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get the updates as they come out. And if you want to engage with other agency owners that are enjoying this podcast, join our community. Head over to agencyjourneyinsiders.com. It's going to take you to our special private Facebook group, a collection of owners from around the world who are on their own journey to build their own agency. So head over to agencyjourneyinsiders.com. Join the group today. And if you're at a point where you're ready for some help and you want to implement processes and systems to scale your agency, you can head over to zenpilot.com slash free training. And there you can watch a special 19-minute training presentation where we walk through the exact process that we use at Zenpilot to help agencies implement processes and systems so they can scale their business without reinventing the wheel for every client. And that allows agency owners to pull out of the weeds and spend more time working on their business. So hope you're enjoying the content here today. We'd love it if you join our community and we can't wait to hear where you are in your agency journey. Now back to the show. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to surround yourself with those people and to like share with them your vision, share with them like where you're trying to go, what you're trying to do, but then empower them to act. Like don't micromanage those people. Don't micromanage those experts, bring them in, teach them the system, share the vision, get them bought into that vision and then let them operate because otherwise you're going to lose those people fast because you're not entrusting them with the process that you you're asking them to control right there. So that's something that Eisenhower did as president is he built a diverse cabinet of people from, you know, both political influences from the business sector, from higher education, from the military. He surrounded himself with all these people and he entrusted them to run their operation. And that freed him as, you know, the commander in chief 
to only deal with those big high level issues that kind of bubbled their way up to the top. He wasn't stuck down micromanaging and all the minutia. So that's number one, have the self-confidence to surround yourself with smart people. Number two was to practice solitude. And where, where you see this come out, you see it a lot of different points in his life. But one, one point that really stuck out to me was leading up to the decision to launch the D-Day invasion. This is something that had been over two years in the making. It was going to be the largest movement of men and materials in history. And all of it rested on General Eisenhower's shoulders to say, yes, we're going. And when it came time to actually make the decision, all of the decision makers, all the different generals and meteorologists and everyone were around the table sharing their opinions. And Eisenhower asked for everyone's opinion. Everyone shared their perspective. But what happened was he didn't take a vote on should we go or not. He asked for everyone's expert opinion, and then he took over 10 minutes in just complete silence. And just picture this room where you're about to launch the biggest invasion in the history of the world, and it's completely silent. And he's just sitting there thinking and contemplating what to do. And what he's doing as a leader in this situation is he is blocking out the noise and allowing his mind to just process all of the inputs that he has been soaking in from the people around that table leading up to it, all of the everything that's brought him to this place. He's processing it in that moment of silence. And there's a cool episode. We will throw the link on the comments here and the blog post as well on the Art of Manliness podcast that talks about this moment in Eisenhower's life as well. And in other moments, other leaders lives, how you leverage solitude to basically open up the subconscious mind to process all that you've all of the inputs that are coming in. But it's a powerful leverage tool that we can use as leaders, especially with so much noise on social media, our inbox, clients asking for our attention. It's easy to allow kind of the chaos of the everyday to get the better of you. But what you want to do is be able to collect inputs, use solitude to then maintain perspective on those inputs and make strategic decisions on those. And Eisenhower was a great example of someone who could do that and then decisively act when it was time to act. Doesn't solitude sound intimidating though? It's like how much time do I need? Is that like I'm taking every single weekend completely offline? Is that like I'm meditating for an hour every morning? Mm -hmm. Is there any recommendations you have for people who are similar to me? Like, okay, I understand that's important at different periods of my life. I've been better and worse at it. But Mm -hmm. how do I, if I need more of that right now, like where do I, I've got three kids. I'm coaching a high school sport. I'm running a business. Where do I, like, how do you talk to someone who's in, and that's like my situation is not unique. Obviously pretty much everyone listening is like, yeah. we're, we're running an agency because we're the type of people who get involved and do stuff. Um, exactly. So where do we find time? Yeah. This, and this doesn't have to be like a weekend retreat where you're by yourself and you shut out all inputs. Although that is, that would be healthy for people. Practicing solitude can just be going for a 15 minute walk and not having a podcast in and not checking your Slack notifications. That's the thing is when you allow those interruptions to come in, it derails kind of the heavy lifting that your subconscious mind is doing. Like we're, we're leaders of businesses. We're leaders of organizations, right? So we're the ones tasks with solving the big problems. And if we are constantly allowing ourselves to be interrupted by the chaos of notifications of just the curiosity of, oh, what's going on, on Facebook? What's going on, on Twitter right now? We don't give our minds the opportunity to sit and chew on all the stuff that we learn. All of the client conversations that we have, all of the blog posts that we've read, 
You know, we don't allow ourselves that capacity, that space to interpret that information, kind of crunch it down and use that to solve the problems that we're facing. So practically, it can mean a 15-minute walk. It can mean just turning the radio off on your commute instead of having the radio on. So it's finding those little opportunities, like no extra time. Is it Tony Robbins who advocates that a lot? Like what are those moments in your life where you're already doing something in the shower? Like tuning out, you don't need more content. You need more space to process the content is, I guess, the kind of the rule of thumb there. So it can be little things, great. It doesn't have to be huge amounts of time, but – um, for me, yeah. it's walking into the office without my without listening to a podcast and just allowing that silence to kind of to to process kind of what's in the backlog of my mind. I think for our personality types, especially, and that's a broad statement, but the type of people who are entrepreneurial, where we understand opportunity cost, we understand a lot of concepts that make us think, well, I could be learning, I could be adding, and we are mm-hmm. kind of obsessed with adding and creating value and building things and in whatever context and shape that that takes. So the thing that I found most helpful is I need to be doing something where I have an excuse to just sit there or to just Mm. do whatever. So whether that's like when we've gone fishing, it's like, well, we're fishing realistically, I'm not catching anything, but I have an excuse for why I'm not doing something else or at my computer or doing something. Um, Yeah. Showers. I know Marcus Sheridan has shared um, on a podcast episode about how he, it's not uncommon to take multiple showers a day. And for me, that's something that it's like, well, this is part of my routine and I don't have, obviously I can't be working or I'm not listening to stuff. I don't use the Bluetooth speaker in the shower because it's a great time to just kind of think it's not very long. It's quick, but there's something that I need to be doing. Or if I'm working with my hands or doing something physical, Mm -hmm. carrying equipment around for baseball is like a, um, a form of uh, rest or like kind of relaxing for me because I have to be using my body to do something else. And I don't have, depending on the current state that I'm in, at least like I'm not actively trying to process any one thing, just kind of sitting there driving in the car is another one that always leads to ideas. It's like, well, I'm stuck here on the road for another four hours. What am I going to (laughs) do? Okay. Yeah. I guess my mind will just kind of take over. So I think, I think you're, uh, you're right. That doesn't need to be big, but it does need to be something where, you're not stressing out about what you ought to be doing instead of just sitting there. Exactly. That's awesome. So number three is protect your focus. And one cool anecdote that Smith shared in the book was a moment that happened just after Eisenhower was was inaugurated as president. A member of the White House staff came up to him with an unopened envelope kind of on, on a tray. And Eisenhower said, I don't open envelopes. That's why I have a staff. And at first thought, that sounds pretty snobby, right? Like, I don't I don't open my mail. I've got people that do that. But when you kind of dig into it and you understand why he said that, you see the wisdom in it. He What he's doing right there is he's protecting the inputs. He's protecting what shows up on, on his desk. And I think as entrepreneurs today, we are horrible at this. Because we want to always be on top of things. We want to always see what's coming in. I know I struggle with putting systems in place that filter out what actually gets your attention. Your focus as a business owner is one of the leading determining factors of how successful you're going to be. Like what are you applying yourself to? What are those problems that you're allowing yourself to think about? Like what gets in front of you? What gets your attention right there? So do you have systems and processes in place? Is your team structured in a way to solve problems that you don't need to be solving? 
Like as a business owner, you've got your $10 task, your $100 task, your $1,000 tasks. Are you, or do you have systems in place to make sure that you're not doing all of those things, but you're only tackling the things that maximize your output that are like the most profitable for you? Profitable in revenue, like doing client work, but also profitable in terms of growing your business. Are you scaling by applying your focus to the right areas? Right. What was the context where he's writing about that? Was the context like, here's an envelope that I just want you to open? Or was it like a ceremony where he's like, here's this, here's a cool. No, it was in the office. So it was just, it was, he'd just become president. It was the first day on the job. And I guess they were just following the protocol of what it had been for the previous administration. Like, here's a piece of mail. I don't know if it was from the general public or if it was from someone else, but his, his response was, was very abrupt very blatant and it's classic Eisenhower. He ran his, his entire administration the way he would run an army where each cabinet member, instead of just being kind of someone who's there and shares their opinion from time to time, he viewed them as a general of an army. So whoever was the the secretary of the treasury, like that was his unit and he was in charge of running it. And Eisenhower made sure that they were on the same page about the policies but then he would entrust that person completely. And what was really cool is this – it was Eisenhower who really maximized um, the, the the cabinet meeting. And he had them every single week. He met with everyone, followed a very strict agenda, and he took complete control of the meeting in the process. And he was one of the first presidents to actually regularly implement that and ran it like a machine, man. He had a very strict process. It protected the inputs that he got. So he spent his time solving big, big problems, and that's that's our role as business leaders is how do we put systems and processes in place that pull us out of the weeds and put us on top of the business so we can guide the ship essentially in the direction where we're trying to go. Right. Well, props to him, man. If someone brings me my mail on a platter, <laughs> I'm to go ahead and open that. <laughs> exactly. So that's point number three. Point number four is lead your team by assuming command and taking ownership. And this was a really cool story where – and he did this a lot, but one specific situation was kind of during the early stages of the Cold War, the the United States had these U-2 spy planes. And these things were kind of cool. They could fly at 70,000 feet, and at this point, the Soviet fighter planes could only go up to like 50,000 feet. And so as I'm reading about this story, I'd heard about it before in the past, but this is kind of the first like blow by blow I heard. The Russian fighter pilots would know that the plane was there. They would get up to that 50,000-foot point, and then their engines would stop. So this like reconnaissance plane is flying overhead. These fighter planes are trying to get up to it. The, the Soviets didn't have the technology to knock this plane out of the sky until they did. <laughs> when they did, it was an embarrassment for the Eisenhower administration because one of his like one of the things that made Eisenhower so popular was his authentic personality. Like he always told the truth and that's like he's kind of a classic um, you know, middle America kind of guy and that's what made him so likable by the army staff and by politicians alike. And so that's what he was leaning on in his relationship with the Soviets was, I'm telling you everything. And so when this came out, it it really blemished the whole administration. And it was really the, I think it was the Secretary of State, Dulles, who was really pushing this really hard. And Eisenhower could have easily swept that guy on the rug, under the rug, made him walk the plank essentially and say, hey, this was his initiative. But since Eisenhower was the one who put his stamp of approval on it, he took complete ownership of this. And this was – he 
blatantly disregarded some political advice to the contrary, but this was this was just how he operated. This was kind of his ethos for leadership. He took ownership of this, and by taking ownership of this decision to run these surveillance flights over Ukraine and over Russia, he actually lost an opportunity for some peace negotiations. He was working on some nuclear test restrictions and some um, like de- disarmament movements early on in the Cold War, and all of those talks got put off by this assumption of ownership right here. But what it allowed him to do was move – once he kind of swallowed that pride and kind of took those lumps, he was able to move through that a lot faster. And so they were able to overcome the crisis even with the Soviets to then move forward beyond that relatively quickly because he took ownership. And I th- this jumped right off the page for me from an agency perspective. How many times do we have mem- times where our clients come to us and they're complaining – about team members or they're like someone drops a ball somewhere and it ends up on your plate and it can be easy to throw a team member under the bus. But remember, we're agencies and our rate limiting factor is our team and our team's ability to execute on the solutions that we're providing for our clients. And your job is to foster that family that you have inside of your agency. And so as a leader, take command of that role and take ownership of what happens at the agency. If it's someone's fault, you can address that internally and make sure it doesn't happen again. But when it comes to externally presenting United Front and take ownership of that, it's going to be it's going to win you points with your team because they're going to see that oh they're he's protecting us they're they're creating a, a safe place for us and it's going to give you points with the client because you're going to step up own it and be able to move on a lot faster they're going to respect you more because you're someone who takes ownership over something like that so that was big for me Gray I like that one a lot that's cool one of the reasons I love sports so much. These are just going to continue going. This is the life of dealing with a, with a coach. Is just the transparency <laughs> that's involved there. So there's certain contexts where we understand, or at least there's like a culture of more of a culture of taking ownership. And I guess this even varies even within the sport. But I'm, I think like you know, if we our pitcher just has a terrible day and we lose, like it's a team loss. It's a obviously one mm-hmm. person underperformed, but. There's a culture of like we own that as a team. Now, on an individual development basis, there's plenty of blame shifting, and you know, there's plenty of kids who are well, I didn't get this opportunity, or I didn't, you know, like it's all someone else's fault, and it's much more individual. But there's this culture um, as an organization, normally for teams, where it's like we own our own success or failure, and that's a, a team thing. And one of the big differences between what we do on the baseball field and what happens in the agency is the level of transparency. Anyone can come and watch and see. Mm, and yeah. We don't really need to address it because everyone kind of understands and sees, well, here's part of what played into that. I say that, but maybe that's not true because there's plenty of irrational people who <laughs> their own version of what happens isn't the same. But we have less transparency into the whole process in the agency context, but that doesn't so it's easier to hide and to point fingers and to say, well, this happened, and they'll have no way of knowing whether that was true or not. So when we have that veil of protection, it's easier to try and deceive people or sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's not accurate. Yeah. Um, so we need to fight against that, I think. That doesn't mean I'm not saying open up every single thing that you do and have it all on video so that your clients can watch an instant replay it back and forth and see who actually dropped the ball where. Yeah. Um, or when things go well, regardless. Um it's not fix it. It's fix our own character and um, mm-hmm. develop ourselves, like strengthen and sharpen our moral compass and do the right thing. Um, yeah. Take responsibility. 
stepping up and taking ownership, man. It's it's funny how simple it is, but also like how refreshing it is when you see it in action. Um, and that really jumped off the page when I was reading that about Eisenhower. The last thing I want to highlight is this one was this one was really interesting because I think we think of like presidents that were generals. Um, and two examples that kept coming up was Ulysses Grant and General Eisenhower. Um, and you think like, oh, they're they're generals, like they're going to be itching for war. But both of those examples were were people who had seen the reality of what war was and wanted to stay as far away from it as possible. But a, a policy that Eisenhower had was if you're going to commit ground forces, do so with overwhelming force. Like don't put one foot in and one foot out. And that is a principle that we can take to decisions that we make as business leaders, initiatives that we undertake is, number one, if you're going to do something, think long and hard and strategically about what is the reality of the cost of this initiative. Should we tackle it from this direction? Are there any directions that we should tackle it from that we're not seeing? Like how is this going to impact all other areas of the business? And then once you make a decision that this is something that we want to do, Go all in on it. Like, don't go half in and say, okay, we're going to try to do it a little bit here. No, go all in and make it happen. Like, put your best foot forward to win right there and not try to, like, you know, play something halfway, but go all in on it. Eisenhower did that in a couple of different situations. D-Day was a big one where they just went all in on that. They wanted to go in earlier, but since they couldn't muster the full force to really hit it hard the way that they wanted to, they held it back. Um during so during the like the desegregation policies that were happening under Eisenhower in high schools when they were bringing um, bringing high schools together, he deployed the 101st Airborne unit to Little Rock, Arkansas, to oversee and break up mob violence and everything right there. He could have done that with just like a little force, but he sent the entire group there, and it just made an overwhelming statement of like the federal government is coming in to reinforce the law of the land right here. And because he did that, that swift action that really nipped a lot of things in the bud right there. And so as you're leading and as you're thinking about different initiatives you can go into into 2019, I'd, I'd challenge you to to analyze what you want to do, pick the one or two things that are going to have the most impact and go all into those things. And don't allow multiple initiatives to dilute your focus because you're not going to get value out of them. Go all in, you're going to commit the ground forces, commit to overwhelming force on those few initiatives, and really knock them out of the park. That's great. That You know how I get one idea or theme stuck in my head roughly probably every six weeks or so? <laughs> so like earlier this summer, it was more and more. And then whatever you're obviously thinking of or you're already partial to is just what you see everywhere you look. So it's like your greatest it's strength true. is your greatest weakness. That was a theme earlier this year, still a theme for me. And then lately it's been this idea of like try and understand the decision that you're making, like the real decision that you're making, not do I want to start an agency or not, but do I want to start this type of business? Am I the type of person? Like, is this the type of thing that I aspire to do? What's the reality of the decision that I'm making? Um, so I think this is a good, this aligns really well with that concept of like figure yeah, out what's the real decision that you're making. Obviously you need to do the analysis and figure out, is this what I is this the type of thing that I want to do? Um, and, but once you do, are you the type of agency who specializes in something, or are you the mm -hmm. generalist who just continues to say yes? And if we back up and look at all the examples and what history shown us, like who has more success, um, 
who, you know, like what are the pros and cons of both of these? What are the lifestyles that these types of agency owners live? What are the sizes that these tend to accrue and what are the revenues that they tend to build? Um, what are the margins they operate at? All the different questions that are there to be asked. But once you make a decision or once you realize that decision, make a decision and then go all in on that decision and don't back off because it's not working and waver back and forth, but realize the decision that you're making. And then like you talked about from the Eisenhower example is just go all in. Make it happen. So this is the five points. There it is. The five points. Dude, that's great. So, I'm glad you got through the book and you're able to a share big win. and distill it. Good takeaways. I'd recommend it if you're a history buff or if you just want to learn how um, – you want to learn more about something that you didn't know about. That's why I went into it. It was worth the trip, man. What's next on the reading list? I've got three books that I'm thinking about. i got one on Churchill. Obviously, I'm a Churchill fan. Um, I've got one on George Washington. I love George Washington. He's like my – I've got a man crush on him. And <laughs> – then one on the Battle of the Bulge, um, which I don't want to go like I don't want to nerd out on you guys <laughs> on history, but the Battle of the Bulge was a result. Well, this is this is oversimplifying it, but that was at a moment in the war when General Eisenhower took direct field command, and like I said earlier, he had never done that before, and so General Montgomery, who was with the British forces, was like very very experienced at that aspect of war as was General Patton, um, as was General Bradley. Like These are all on-the-ground folks. Well, Eisenhower kind of overruled that, took direct command on the ground, and the Battle of the Bulge was kind of a result of some strategic errors. Well, looking back in hindsight is 2020, <laughs> we would call them errors. Um, he was applying some some classic military principles that were brought over from World War One. But long story short, he he made a blunder, but he corrected that blunder very quickly and actually wielded um, a big victory after – or the, the, the Battle of the Bulge ended the way it did because of the way Eisenhower moved everything. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious hmm. about digging into that a little bit more. Well, that was just a little sneak preview of – what did you say you started this book in July? This is July, so, okay, so around May, May I'll come hey back guys, to you guys. Battle of the Bulge more. coming to you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yes, Good that's stuff. reality. All right. Well, we will wrap it up here. If you listen on the podcast, you're not yet a member in Agency Journey Insiders. Go to agencyjourneyinsiders.com. That will redirect you to the Facebook group. You can join right there. We'd love to have you in and participating in the conversation as well. If you're watching live or you listen to this prior to Thanksgiving, uh, happy Thanksgiving to you. If you're in the U.S., if you're not in the U.S., you can still have a happy Thanksgiving and be grateful. Um, but enjoy the enjoy the time and take take the opportunity to find solace, solitude, um, find small ways to rest, and count your blessings. Yeah, this has been great. I appreciate you sharing with us here, Dimmer, and um, everyone tuning in. So we'll we'll connect with you guys soon. Have a great week. See you guys.